The following podcast may contain content that is not suitable for all ages or sensitive ears. Please be responsible. Thank you, and donkey. Hello, Save Them family. Landon here. Welcome to this episode of the Save Them podcast. Uh, this will be a short one today, but it's more of a kind of a pop culture update and brief, uh, which is very timely. Um, it's actually about a, a week delayed, but I wanted to space things out just a little bit. Uh, but it was, it was very interesting last week. And uh, by the way, I'm, I'm coming to you from a, uh, a very uh, beautiful setting uh, this morning. I'm kind of in the woods, uh, surrounded by birds and creeks and all that good stuff. And uh, so if you hear some chirping in the background, I don't know if you can, but um, it is... Uh, beautiful morning in God's creation. Uh, so anyways, uh, last week, back to darker topics. Um, last week, as I posted the fourth episode in our series on pedophilia, it was, it was quite amazing because, um, in the same period of time, a, an, an article was released by the wall street journal that, uh, is titled, sorry, scrolling around here. It was titled, Instagram Connects Vast Pedophile Network. And um, that happened early on in the week. On the, This happened on June the 7th. And as I posted last week's podcast, that article came out and quickly generated a response on multiple outlets. And what was very interesting came across my my path. I I scan many different things uh, when it comes to news or um, opinion or input or whatever. I, I don't lock myself down to one channel of feed or one perspective. I like to hear what lots of different people are saying. Um, and then I turn to scripture and use the lens of scripture and, and prayer and asking guidance from the Holy Spirit to help understand the world around me. So, um, I investigate all kinds of different avenues. So, um, in looking at this pedophile topic and understanding where we're at in society, you, you will have seen in our podcast series that there are different groups there that are talking about this, not just... Um, let's say my own echo chamber of people who think like me or something like that. Um, if there even were such a crazy echo chamber of people. <laughs> um, but so anyway, so these things come across my desk. So I see this, this thing from the wall street journal. And then very shortly thereafter, um, Tucker Carlson, um, many of you may know who Tucker Carlson is. Um, if you're not familiar with him, he's a, a pretty well-known, news commentary guy in the U.S., and um, he used to be very popular on an outlet called Fox News, and then uh, for whatever reason, his his show was stopped uh, very recently, um, and which was bizarre because he's basically the most popular guy on the cable news feeds, hands down, like I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like the next four shows <laughs> didn't even compare to his one show. So, um, 
and they let him go for whatever reason and um or I, I guess he still technically works for them but the show's been canceled blah 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 so what he started doing is just a couple weeks ago he started releasing these little 10 minute epithets just kind of monologues where he gives some thoughts on some current topics of the day and he had done his first one of those a couple weeks ago and got millions and millions and millions of views well then he released his second one last week on the heels of the wall street journal article and he directly addresses the issue of pedophilia in his monologue which has then subsequently gotten millions and millions and millions of views well, that is really interesting to me because now this topic, which very few people want to have anything um, to say about, uh, has now, in the span of one week, entered the public discourse via two different channels and many others, but two very well-recognized and well-listened um, well to, well-read uh, platforms, Wall Street Journal and Tucker Carlson. So that's good. I mean, we we want people thinking about these things. We want people talking about these things because if if they're if they're completely in the dark and not aware, then nothing will ever happen, um, and they won't ever feel the need to take a perspective on doing anything about things such as pedophilia. But if it's being discussed and addressed. Uh, then maybe people at the individual level will start taking action and start making decisions uh, when they encounter things and they say, you know what, that's crossing a line. That's now hurting children. And I think in Tucker's thing, he does make the point that, well, you know, actually, nobody's going to do anything about this because in the Wall Street Journal deal, um, they're exposing Instagram and chances are nobody will do anything about it because these days, as, as Tucker will address, um, good is evil and evil is good and everything's upside down and nobody cares about anything that we used to care about. And so whatever, go for it. You know, that's just kind of the world we're living in now. Uh, so what I, what I do want to do, and I'll let you read the Wall Street Journal article for yourself. I'll put the link in the description box. But I will just read just kind of the very intro blurb here. Uh, it says... So the title is Instagram Connects Vast Pedophile Network. The Meta Units Systems, so Meta is the host company. So Instagram and Facebook are basically the same uh, company, okay? So the Meta Units Systems for Fostering Communities have guided users to child sex content. Company says it is improving its internal controls. And I did hear an article, uh, sorry, an interview later on during the course of the week uh, where they highlighted the fact that a guy from Instagram Meta actually came on and said, yeah, no, uh, our algorithms point you towards the things that you want. So if you want child porn, uh, we're going to be serving you up child porn. Um, yeah, that's not a really good position to be standing on. And the fact that that, that guy even said that out loud is pretty shocking. Um, but let me carry on with the Wall Street Journal intro here says instagram the popular social media site owned by meta platforms helps connect and promote a vast network of accounts openly devoted to the commission and purchase of underage sex content according to investigations by the wall street journal and researchers at stanford university and the university of massachusetts amherst 
Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. That's the intro. You can go read the article yourself if you want. Uh, but this, this now has hit the public discourse. It's like, whoa, okay. There's a major tech company that is basically funneling people towards the purchase of child sex content. That is absolutely evil. That is absolutely not okay. And um, if nothing is done about that at all, uh, then it's really just eyes wide open as far as the world we're living in. I mean, at that point, you can just say all bets are off because really nobody cares about children. And if society that doesn't care about children is a society in collapse. And then we just got to be ready for what the next step looks like. Because honestly, um, you can't sustain a civilization that, that is willing to harm children. Uh, it's just not, that's not how this works. It's not how humanity, humanity flourishes when it doesn't care about its own children. Uh, now, a lot of people these days, I, I hear them being like, ah, you know, it's, it's kind of one of two things. Either the sky is falling and it's the end of the world, or um, everything's no big deal and you shouldn't make such a big deal about things. So it's, it's these kind of two ends of the spectrum. And like with most things, somewhere in the middle is balance and is kind of reasoned thought. And there's some truth on, on either side of the spectrum. And the reality is, is that um, it, there are indicators of societal collapse. If you, if you go and look at the indicators of the fall of the Roman Empire, you'll see that out of like, I think it's the 15 major indicators, you know, we, we check almost all the boxes as American and Western civilization. So we are, we are well on the path to societal collapse, uh, basically just reinventing um, or redoing what the Romans went through. Okay, so if that's the case, then what happens next? Well, we've seen in history that when societies collapse, then there's some kind of um, anarchy or some kind of tyrannical takeover, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in the church age, what we see is that Christians are pretty persecuted because they stand in resistance to whatever tyranny or anarchy, you know, just like in the French Revolution, um, there was basically the Jacobins running around beheading everybody. Um, They were very much anti-Christian. But if you look at the Roman, uh, sorry, not the Roman, uh, the Russian or the Chinese communist revolutions, you see that the uh, dictators came in and started whacking all the Christians Okay, it doesn't really matter. Nazis did the same thing, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, when the Roman Empire fell, um, or uh, sorry, after Christ, once the Christian persecution began in the Roman Empire on its way to falling, you saw that there were very severe periods where Christians were being used as candlesticks in the streets and set on fire uh, as light posts or lamp posts. Okay, so... Why do I say all that? Basically, the church survives all these situations because uh, the body of Christ is the light in the darkness. So when, when the darkness spreads, the light continues to be there. And it eventually pushes back and it eventually overcomes because the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's body. So if we do enter a time where... There's a, in this grand war between good and evil that um, darkness is going to win a skirmish or two. 
then we just have to be prepared to fight the good fight and to just stand against that and let Christ do his work through his body. That's all. We don't have to be overly concerned with the day-to-day as though there's some sort of uh, political solution to a spiritual problem, because there's not. There is never a political solution to a spiritual problem, ever. Ever. Uh, And if our society is so spiritually sick, uh, spiritually ill, that it is going to cut off its nose to spite its face and just going to this self-destruct mode, well, the body of Christ just has to stand for truth, honesty, integrity, order, right? And just proclaim the kingdom while all the rest of that is going on. Because, honestly, people devoted to the works of Satan are going to go down the road of chaos and destruction, and they will eliminate themselves eventually uh, because their works are not sustainable. Their, their father is the father of lies, and um, they can't sustain that. So, anyways, um, so I, I want to play... Um, and please go read that Wall Street Journal article for yourself. I want to play the uh, Tucker Carlson. It's a little, I think it's about a 10, 12-minute vignette where he talks about this, and he goes directly after a bunch of the topics that you've heard us cover in our four-part series on pedophilia. So um, think about how that can have ripple effects into the society around us or whether it won't have any effect at all. Whether, you know, instead of throwing a rock into a pool, you're like throwing a rock into quicksand or a puddle of, I don't know, oil or syrup, and it just sinks. (laughs) No ripples. Um, I've seen enough things in in the past few days to think that there might be some ripple effects. I'm optimistic. Um, I'm optimistic about the heart of the church. I'm optimistic about the youth. And... They're Christians in the current youth setting are very, very um, on fire. They, they are Holy Spirit driven. I I've seen it so much lately, and um, you know I I come from a generation of uh, cynics and and grunge. Right, that's that's my generation. And uh, when I look at the the youth today who are proclaiming Christ, I am moved. I am seriously moved because, you know, the, the kind of the walk that we walked in our generation of, of, um, of kind of meandering through comfort and, uh, you know, sort of trying to deal with churchianity, but, uh, nobody was really interested and that kind of thing. That, fight that we were fighting when we were 25 and under is not the fight that the folks are fighting today. They're fighting a very much, very explicit goats and sheep, black and white, good and evil, and battle lines drawn. Um, And I think they can see with clarity, you're either on the Lord's side or not. And those who are willing to stand with the Lord are standing with verve and with solid foundation and I, I see it. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of it. And I'm encouraged when I see it. And I do see it hitting the public discourse. Um, in fact, if, if you haven't seen the video 
I'll have to see if I can find this and put it in the description box as well. Um, and maybe I'll even add it in after Tucker because I think, I think it's encouraging. Um, I saw an excerpt from the post-game interview of the women's softball college championships in the USA. And um, these, these three young women from one of the teams were basically asked a question and you know what? I'm not even going to spoil it for you. I'm going to let you listen to their qu- the question and their response. And I want you to think about the Holy Spirit uh, when you hear their response. And, I, I, and just let that settle. And I hope you're as encouraged as I was when I heard it. So, all right. I'm going to go ahead and hand you over to Tucker Carlson. And then we'll wrap up with that excerpt from that interview of those three sisters in Christ. All right. This is Landon, and I'm out. Cheers. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. Let's say you wanted to control a country. How would you start? We'd want to make sure you had the complete obedience of everybody inside your borders who was authorized to use deadly force. You would start with the military, and then federal law enforcement, then move your way down ultimately to agencies like the IRS. Controlling the guns would be a top priority for you if you ever wanted to go dictatorial, if you wanted to be baby doc. But let's say you had deeper ambitions. Let's say you wanted the power not simply to control people's behavior, but to control how they think, not just their bodies, but their minds, as a god would. In that case, you'd need to take charge of the society's taboos. A taboo is something that by popular consensus is not allowed. A taboo may not be illegal, but it doesn't need to be. Over time, social prohibitions are more powerful and more enduring than laws. Societies are defined by what they will not permit, as are famously religions. Muslims don't eat pork, neither do Orthodox Jews. Traditional Christians oppose extramarital sex, the Amish avoid electricity, and so on. American society isn't overtly religious, but it's governed by taboos, and it always has been. What's interesting is how fast our taboos are changing. This is not happening organically. What we're allowed to dislike is being dictated to us from above, sometimes by force. Until fairly recently, for example, it was taboo in this country to attack people on the basis of their race. That was the main lesson of the Second World War, we were told again and again. The one thing we learned from the Nazis is that it's dangerous to reduce human beings to their genetic code. There is no master race. That made sense, but apparently we no longer believe it. Punishing people based on their skin color is not only permitted in modern America, it is mandatory throughout business and government and higher education, as long as the victims are white. At one time, that would have been unimaginable. So with the current behavior of our politicians. As recently as the 1992 presidential campaign, adultery was considered disqualifying for anyone seeking higher office. Bill Clinton was very nearly derailed in the New Hampshire primary by his affair with Jennifer Flowers. Clinton went to elaborate lengths to lie about the relationship because he had no choice. But he was the last presidential candidate who had to meet this standard. By 2008, it was obvious to anybody who was paying attention that Barack Obama had a strange and highly creepy personal life. Yet nobody ever asked him about it. By that point, a leader's behavior within his own marriage, the core relationship of his life, had been declared irrelevant. It was Barack Obama's business, not yours. One by one, with increasing speed, our old taboos have been struck down, 
those that remain have lost their moral force. Stealing, flaunting your wealth, striking women, smoking marijuana on the street, shameless public hypocrisy, taking other people's money for not working. All of these things used to be considered unacceptable in America, not anymore. So it probably shouldn't surprise us that the greatest taboo of all is teetering on the edge of acceptability, child molestation. A generation ago, talking to someone else's children about sex was widely considered grounds for a thrashing. Touching them sexually was effectively a death penalty offense. When Jeffrey Dahmer was bludgeoned to death in the bathroom of a Wisconsin prison in 1994, the Milwaukee district attorney had to caution the public not to turn Dahmer's killer into a folk hero. Jeffrey Dahmer had molested and murdered children. People felt justified in celebrating his death. 25 years later, that standard had changed dramatically in the state of Wisconsin, as in the rest of the country. In the summer of 2020, during the BLM riots in Kenosha, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse defended his life from a convicted child molester called Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum was trying to kill Rittenhouse, so Rittenhouse shot him in self-defense. But it was Joseph Rosenbaum whom the media cast as the victim of the story. Kyle Rittenhouse, meanwhile, an underage boy fending off violence from a child molester, was denounced as the villain. Ultimately, he was indicted for murder. One of the things that this tells us is the people who run our country no longer see child molesters as the worst among us. It's never been more obvious than it was yesterday when the Wall Street Journal ran a long expose about kiddie porn on Instagram. Instagram, the journal found, quote, helps connect and promote a vast network of accounts openly devoted to the commission and purchase of underage sex content. Instagram connects pedophiles and connects them to content sellers of child pornography. In one instance, the paper discovered that Instagram was recommending the phrase incest toddlers to users who'd expressed interest in similar material. By the way, no one at Instagram denied that any of this had happened, nor did Mark Zuckerberg, who controls the company. The journal story was accurate. It was all pretty shocking, but not as shocking as what happened next, which was effectively nothing at all. The largest circulation newspaper in the United States revealed that one of the world's most influential companies was promoting pedophilia, and nobody in power did anything about it. The Justice Department did not announce an investigation. Congress did not schedule hearings. The guy who runs Instagram, Adam Mosseri, still has his job. In fact, Mosseri's last tweet, which is pinned, is a video of himself bragging about how effective Instagram's algorithm is. Keep in mind as you watch this, it's real. People often talk about the algorithm, but there is no one algorithm for Instagram. There are many algorithms and ranking processes we use to try to personalize the experience to make it as interesting as we can for each and every person who uses Instagram. We believe in this idea of personalization. What you're interested in and what I'm interested in is different, and so therefore your Instagram and my Instagram should be different. <laughs> what you're interested in and what I'm interested in is different, Masseri explains patiently, so your Instagram feed will be different from mine. You're interested in children, that's why you're getting all the incest toddler posts. It's a highly personalized experience. That tweet is still up tonight. Of course, everybody at Instagram, in fact, everyone everywhere in authority, will still claim to think that child molestation is bad, but the tone has changed unmistakably. When they say it's bad, they mean it in a kind of abstract way. Bad like a civil war in Central Africa is bad. You wouldn't prefer it, but there are reasons it happens. 
That's why we now refer to pedophiles as minor attracted persons, because honestly, who can judge? These people are a sexual minority, so pause before you attack them. And in any case, it's not like pedophiles are barging into the Capitol building to sit in Nancy Pelosi's chair or asking uncomfortable questions about the last election. For miscreants like that, no punishment is too harsh. So far this month, the FBI's Washington field office has issued 11 press releases. 10 out of 11 have been about January 6th. Keep in mind that January 6th happened more than two and a half years ago. Now you know why the feds were ignoring kid touchers on Instagram. They're too busy to respond. They've got much more important things to do, like finding white supremacists. White supremacists are America's new child molesters. We've got zero tolerance for white supremacists because no one threatens the life of this country more than they do. Here's Joe Biden once again making that very clear last month. To stand up against the poison of white supremacy, as I did my inaugural address to a single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland, is white supremacy. And I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say it wherever I go. Pardon the feedback, but you heard the point. White supremacy is the most dangerous threat to the American homeland. Joe Biden just told us that. It's more dangerous than the threat of nuclear war with Russia. It's more dangerous than the threat of the Mexican drug cartels, who've already killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and are now in control of swaths of our southwestern states. White supremacy is that bad, Joe Biden says. In fact, it's worse. But what is it? That's the question. Can anyone in authority actually define white supremacy? What is it? Is white supremacy liking white people too much? If so, that's going to put those of us with white children in a pretty tough spot. Or is white supremacy something much more obviously bad, like trying to expel all non-whites from America and creating some kind of ethno-state? If that's Joe Biden's definition, what exactly is the scope of this threat? How many people are currently working on this American white ethno-state project? And what are the chances they're going to pull it off? Our guess is not very many and precisely zero. But we can't say for sure because no one has showed us the numbers. These are not rhetorical questions. When the President of the United States describes something as the worst possible crime Americans can commit, you have a right to know what that crime is. You used to have that right. Under our pre-revolutionary legal code before George Floyd, questions like these were easy to answer. A crime was defined as something that an elected legislature had explicitly banned, usually an act that hurt somebody else. In America, crimes were described precisely with words in English and then preserved in books, which you could read yourself. If you ever wondered whether you were committing a crime, you could just look it up. You could know for sure whether you were a criminal. Now you can't. And needless to say, that's the point. The point of the exercise is to keep you off balance, to keep you afraid. When no one's willing to define the offense, you can't be sure whether or not you're committing it. You could be accused at any time and everything you have taken from you. You live in fear. Remember this guy? Emmanuel Cafferty was driving near a Black Lives Matter protest in Poway in his SDG&E truck when he says he noticed somebody following him and trying to get his attention. Later, that person posted a picture of him making what some believed is a white supremacy symbol on Twitter. Cafferty says he had no idea about any white power symbols and was just cracking his knuckles outside his window when the picture was taken of him. Later that day, he says he was notified by SDG&E that he would be suspended pending an investigation. And a few days later, he was fired. 
What that man did was so offensive, as you just saw, that local news had to blur the photograph of his hand. He was fired from his job. His life was destroyed for cracking his knuckles. He didn't know cracking his knuckles was racist in his defense, but then nobody did until the day that poor Emmanuel Cafferty was unwise enough to crack them. When a crime has no definition, anyone can be guilty of it. It's hard to relax in a country like that. The old system was better. Government operated on the basis of laws, not amorphous moral terror. Politicians couldn't accuse you of something they couldn't define. The legal code was straightforward. Child molestation was a crime. Having unfashionable opinions was not. Outside of the public sphere, the population mostly governed itself, as it does in every society, and used taboos to do it. You knew what was allowed and what wasn't because the rules didn't change very often. The taboos were organic. They derived from collective experience and instinct, the two most reliable guides to life. They evolved for a reason. They still do. Our job at this point is to protect them, despite the hectoring, the nonstop hectoring from the people in charge. You know the outlines of right and wrong. You're born knowing them. So don't let them talk you out of what you can smell. Don't let them rationalize away your intuitive moral sense. Cling to your taboos like your life depends on them, because it does. Cherish and protect them like family heirlooms. That's exactly what they are. Young here people say the news is full of lies. Some Kennedy's motorcade. 239. <laughs> Alex Scarborough with ESPN for, for the players. I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I'd, that's really the only the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. One thousand percent agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I. I was so happy to win the call. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the college world series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world, if we do lose, yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ, and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys mm -hmm. see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really, like, fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where 
like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And, I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home, and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home, and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, Patty, uh, you've got to keep your eye on